The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're at last able to celebrate one of the great artists, Raphael, on the 500th anniversary of his death. As well as talking to Hugo Chapman of the British Museum about Raphael, we look at the increasing interest in mail art, that is art that's sent by post in this lockdown era. And the artist Mark Dion takes us to the American Museum of Natural History in the latest in our series Lonely Works. Before we go any further, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, for understandable reasons, we've been rather short of good news recently on The Week in Art, but we begin this week with a story that's prompted a lot of joy among art lovers. That the once-in-a-lifetime exhibition of works by Raphael at the Scuderia de Quirinale in Rome, which only opened for three days before being closed due to COVID-19 in March, will reopen on the 2nd of June and run for three months until the 30th of August. The show is the jewel in the crown of the celebrations across Europe and the US, marking the 500th anniversary of Raphael's death, aged 37. Famously, if perhaps inaccurately, because of exhaustion caused by a night of excessive sex with Margarita Lutti, or La Fornarina, one of his most famous portraits. The Rome exhibition, which begins with Raphael's death and moves back in time, includes works on loan from 52 museums and galleries, including the Louvre in Paris, the Prado in Madrid, the National Gallery in London, the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC and the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, which has lent 50 works, including paintings, drawings and sculptures. All the museums have agreed to leave their works in Rome until the end of August. Cheeringly, Matteo Lafranconi, director of the Scuderia del Quirinale, said that there's a new sense of community in the museum world. Everyone is feeling that the only way to get out of the crisis together is to all row in the same direction. I spoke to Hugo Chapman, the keeper of prints and drawings at the British Museum and a Raphael specialist, about the artist whose fame has somewhat unfairly been eclipsed by Leonardo and his great rival, Michelangelo. Hugo, in Civilization, uh, Kenneth Clark says that Raphael was the supreme harmonizer and that made him less suitable for our current age than other Renaissance painters and artists. What do you make of that? Is he more suitable for our age now or or did Clark have a point? I think Kenneth Clark definitely had a point in that Raphael's extraordinary meteoric success uh, does not kind of accord with our sense of of how artistic careers should be. Uh, The troubled uh, Michelangelo forever kind of brooding and falling out with people or the rather kind of solitary and mysterious genius of Leonardo, I think hold much more fascination than Raphael, who was born in a court and from a very early age understood how courts and powerful men worked and sort of worked the system extraordinarily successfully and then of course died relatively young at 37 Uh, so he didn't have the struggle that we like Um, but having said that I I still think the more one knows about Raphael one does realise there's this incredible artistic mind that that underlies his amazing success. I think that's right and certainly that's my impression from everything I read is that is that you know he's he's one of the great polymaths, isn't he? I mean, we we think of Leonardo as a great polymath, but Raphael himself turned his mind, his talents to so many different disciplines. He did, although having said that, that was the Renaissance way. There was no training to be, let's say, an architect. Uh, you just you just sort of talked to stonemasons and, and you learned how to do it. Um, I mean, to some degree, he was less of a polymath than some of his contemporaries. I mean, everybody was less of a polymath than Leonardo, of course. Uh, I mean, he was an extremely brilliant architect, although very little of his architecture survives. Uh, he was uh, he tried his hand at poetry um, with, I don't think, great success, because um, whether that was sort of because Leo, uh, Michelangelo was, was a very good poet. Um, but I think Above all, he was he was a great painter. Well, certainly more than Michelangelo, who 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 did paint, but rather kind of 
grudgingly. He was, you know, was always Michelangelo Sculture. I think what what Raphael can do in paint uh, is still one of the most uh, thrilling things, both in oil paint and also in fresco. He really is technically absolutely brilliant and can sort of turn his hand to everything and is much more sort of varied in his output. You know, there are beautiful landscapes. He's a great portraitist, uh, you know, big sort of historical dramas in a, in a way that uh, I think Leonardo and, and, and Michelangelo really can't match. Let's talk a bit about, about his origins. As you say, he was born essentially at court. His father was a court painter. How much did he learn from his father how, and how quickly did he surpass him? Well, of course, his father isn't around for, for very long. But, I mean, everything that we know about Raphael is that he is a frighteningly quick learner. He absorbs things at, at an amazingly rapid rate. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, he took on his father's mantle at a very early age. He, he kind of understood what his father's art was about and then very swiftly kind of surpassed it and looked for other models. Uh, but I think that court training in, in Urbino, which was a very sophisticated humanistic court, uh, the Raphael's ease with mixing with uh, people socially much higher up, up, up the pecking order and his ability to talk to, to literary men, all of that came out of his training in Urbino. So I think it was a, a kind of ideal place for a, a future world beater to be born. So he was very lucky in that respect. Obviously not so lucky that his father died. And his father, to be frank, wasn't a great, a great painter. He's more famous for his, his uh, poetic um, uh, kind of biographies of, of artists of his time. But, you know, he was a perfectly decent artist who Raphael would have learnt the basics of. But I don't think uh, Giovanni Santi, even his greatest admirer, would not put him amongst the pantheon of great Renaissance artists. And, and that precociousness of Raphael's was extraordinary, wasn't it? Because he, he was a master, basically, before he was in his 20s. Yes, I mean, he, you know, he's, he was, I think, you know, he's one of those artists who who kind of realised uh, his amazing talent, and he had this sort of searching intelligence and a kind of desire to to move. I mean, uh, Urbino, as anybody who's been there, is rather a difficult place to get to. Even now, uh, it's not the centre of anything. And I think uh, you know, Raphael quickly saw that uh, if he was going to make his way, uh, he needed to, to leave Urbino and. Uh, and, and then, you know, he spends time in, in Umbria, in, in, in Perugia, uh, which is a much bigger place and a place where he can learn um, more from, from, uh, from, from Perugino and others. Uh, and then, you know, he then moves on to Florence and then to Rome. He's, you know, he's somebody who's always interested in, in looking around and seeing what's the most interesting artistic trends and wanting to be there and to learn from it. I mean, if you were Michelangelo, and I can't help thinking Michelangelo on his sort of Mount Olympus cloud, wherever great artists go, must be uh, laughing himself fit to bust that poor old Raphael's celebrations of 1528 have been completely overturned uh, by COVID. Uh, uh, because, of course, Michelangelo uh, hated Raphael with a kind of intensity um, that uh, I, th- I think probably endures even in the, in the, in, even in the next world. <laughs> Can you explain why? Because, I mean, there's a, it's obviously complex, but w- why did Michelangelo hate Raphael so much? Well, it's, I, th- I think it was based on Michelangelo feeling that uh, Raphael had looked at his art and kind of s- stolen um, his style. You know, he says in one of his letters, uh, everything that uh, Raphael has, he has from me. I don't think it's true, um, but Michelangelo, the kind of egoist, uh, sees only his own art there. I mean, what's as as you began at the outset, what uh, Raphael is supremely skillful at is taking taking aspects of of lots of different artists and moulding it into an individual, very personal style. It's not all from Michelangelo, but from Michelangelo's particular perspective, that's the way he saw it. Um, and uh, yes, and and. You know, uh, Raphael was tremendously successful. Raphael is ascendant in Rome, the young artist coming to Rome. Uh, and in the end, Leo X can't bear the kind of in, a war between his two 
uh, Florent, uh, for these two, two artists. Uh, and he sends Michelangelo back to Florence to work on Medici projects. And there is Raphael, uh, you know, at, at a very young age. He is the top artist in Rome, which means he's the top artist in Europe. So it is an incredible success. Um, and, you know, we, we, we have very little in terms of documentation to show what Raphael is sort of doing behind um, the scenes. But one s- suspects, you know, he was sort of talking in, to the right the right cardinal at the right time. He was very good at playing politics in a way that Michelangelo wasn't. That's right, because Vasari says that, doesn't he? I mean, it, it, this is the thing about Raphael. He's, he just seems a, an, almost like a perfect human in the sense that he's got, he's got this extraordinary courtly manner. You know, he's, he's uh, an impeccable man. He's, you know, incredibly witty. You know, there's, He's there's, good there's... looking. He's, he's witty, yes. I mean, but at the other time, I think you can see him. And I think one of the, one of the things that um, Tom Henry and Carol, Carol Platzotta uh, did in, in the National Gallery show, which I was involved in, was, was to kind of suggest that actually there were, there's an utterly ruthless side of Raphael. You know, he moves in and he then becomes, whether it's in Perugia, he sort of moves in uh, as he does in Rome and, and sort of becomes uh, the top artist in a, kind of, in a very sort of cuckoo-like way. He sort of comes in and you think, oh, there's poor old Raphael, he's just a poor old little sort of young provincial artist. And by God, he's, you know, soon he's, he, you know, he's, he's, he's taken over all the plum commissions um, and he's forced you out. So, I mean, there is... Um, there is a ruthlessness about Raphael. And, you know, I think he's the brilliance of Raphael is that he sees that in order to succeed in Rome, that he has to have a, a really, really productive and brilliant artistic studio behind him. And this is the difference between him and Michelangelo. Michelangelo always surrounds himself until right at the end of his life where he changes his spots to a degree. But he's, he really is so paranoid, he surrounds himself by artistic um, uh, non-entities because he's so worried they're going to steal ideas from him. Raphael is so supremely confident of his own skills that he hires these very, very young, very talented Giulio Romano, Penny, Perina del Varga, um, these who are really, really top-rate artists and, and have distinguished careers in their own own right. But it's Raphael at the, at the centre of this artistic studio in Rome who is making them work um, and, and produce work in his style. And he's amazingly productive, whether it's cartoon design, whether it's architecture, whether it's tapestries. You know, he, he's, he just sort of covers the whole lot. And I think... Uh, that sort of entrepreneurial spirit of Raphael, the idea of sitting at the centre of a studio, being the sort of chief designer of a, a variety of different lines, uh, is is very modern. And I think, you know, Raphael would be, if he was alive today, you know, would be sort of, um, you know, a film director at the same time as he was writing a novel, etc., etc. He He just, he was just extraordinarily creatively brilliant, uh, and on and sort of understood how production worked. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Ultimately, his brilliance is what got him all those commissions. Because the, I mean, it is it is utterly extraordinary that he hadn't really done any significant public commission before he took on the stanza, which are one of the greatest works of all time. So it seems to me that yes, you know, he he could you know he could have been as charming as they like, but if he didn't back it up with this unbelievable brilliance, then it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> No, I think that's very true. I mean, I, I think, I mean, the, the the problem both of Leonardo and of, of Michelangelo to an extent is 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 the delivery bit. I mean, they the, the ideas were they were as as brilliant as 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 anyone has ever been in terms of ideas. But often in the in the delivery, because both in a sense were quite solitary and and liked to kind of produce their own work, um, meant that their production was was quite limited. Um, that wasn't the case with Raphael. He 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 learnt to 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 get a very productive studio, um, producing work follow you know, following his drawings and and drawings was absolutely fundamental uh, to Raphael. I mean and it, I mean for me, uh, I mean the reason why I'm working in the British Museum. I mean it sounds a bit uh, kind of. Um, 
weird to say it, but it, it is because of Raphael, because when I was at university studying Raphael, I mean, I find him, this is, you know, back to a kind of spotty 19-year-old uh, Hugo. <laughs> uh, I found Raphael as a painter really quite difficult to get my head, you know, I didn't find him very sympathetic. He seemed too perfect, uh, too sort of idealised, um, too sort of rarefied. But but when uh, through the, the, the course at the then Westfield College and, and University College, we were taken to look at drawings of the BM and Ashmo- at the Ashmolean by Raphael. Suddenly, another aspect of Raphael came out, this extraordinary mind, the way that he's pushing himself through drawing to analyse, to understand how the work of Michelangelo and Leonardo, who are much, much more sophisticated than him when he comes to Florence, how he uses drawing to kind of unpick what they're doing and then to kind of absorb it into his own style. I mean, to me, that was just a sort of revelation. And suddenly I could see this amazing mind at work, which anybody looking at a drawing by Raphael can see uh, that in- incredible creativity. You know, he, he... I mean, what the difference is that Raphael then goes on to use those drawings to actually produce work. I mean, so often with Michelangelo and Leonardo, they've produced wonderful drawings, but it doesn't actually materialise into a finished work, um, whereas Raphael is absolutely bent on producing from this drawing, I will then go and do a painting. You know, I'm going to produce. Uh, and that is why he's so loved by patrons, because on the whole, if he said he was going to produce something for you, he actually did produce it. Um, so that's that's quite a killer combo. Absolutely. And it, well, that's one of the wonderful things, isn't it? That, for instance, there are, there are countless drawings for the Disputer, one of the great stanza, of course, aren't there? And, and so you can see these, these great compositions forming in his mind over time, can't we? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that... I mean, if you... If, you know, as an artist, if, if somebody says to you, well, you, your, your subject is, is uh, the revelation that uh, God exists in a wafer. I mean, it it's doesn't exactly offer itself up as a great, it's not an easy subject to, to put together. And yet somehow, uh, Raphael, bit by bit, puts together this compelling uh, composition using and and to you know to make a a lot of sort of bearded blokes interesting by grouping them by using steps to vary their heights uh, by using the a semicircle of of celestial figures at the top you know he animates it and and that's entirely he breaks everything down through drawing and we've got a wonderful drawing in the british museum of of one of those figures in the nude and one sort of thinks that he must have you know broken those each individual composition down to down to the you know using a nude model to to study uh study each and every figure in it i mean you know it's all based on tremendous meticulous uh preparatory studies of which you know only a fraction survive but those that do survive as you say are thrilling in seeing that kind of mind at work how do i make this interesting how do i vary this group how do i you know make it kind of create a sense of movement and drama which he does um despite as i say an extraordinarily dry subject matter you know theology how do i make theology interesting in a pictorial form and and of course one of the great things about the stanza is that you you know we know that he and he's working there and michelangelo's in the in the sistine chapel and and he in in he doesn't in theory have access but bramante the architect has the key so you have this you know raphael going into the sistine chapel and looking up and and absorbing as you say he's a great absorber of influences and he's absorbing michelangelo's influence like firsthand in the next door commission is i mean is or is that is that sort of a neatly apocryphal kind of idea i can well believe it i mean bramante is 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 one of his allies and i think you know that's again one of uh, you know that sort of courtly skill is that you uh, get your allies at court to 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 um to help you and and michelangelo wasn't very good um at at get winning people over i mean you know he he had great and devoted friends because he you know deep down he was a wonderful human being but uh, he wasn't sort of courtly in the way that raphael was uh, and i i can absolutely uh, i think it's totally uh, believable, the idea of Bramante sneaking him in and, and him looking up at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the first half, and, and, and saying, my God, yes, art history has changed. This is different. This is a new order. 
uh, and immediately he reacts. You know, in the School of Athens, there is that brooding figure uh, in, in the front, which is unmistakably uh, comes out of having looked at, at, at uh, Michelangelo's work. So Michelangelo's disquiet about Raphael, that incredible ability just to sort of grasp something so quickly and to see what can be done with it, not in a kind of um, a mimetic way, but in a creative way. Where can I take that to another stage and push it into another direction? I mean, you know, he's he's a terrifying in that respect. I mean, you know, a bit like sort of, you know, being in a swimming pool with a kind of great white shark. I mean, you know, you you know, at a certain point, your art is going to be swallowed up, and then uh, he's going to move far beyond what you you had thought of of of, of going yourself. So, um, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a dangerous character to have around, but, you know, wonderful to that respect. Now, it's his, the 500th anniversary of his death now. Uh, these, you know, celebrations which have been uh, postponed, but wonderfully are now uh, able to resume, at least in part, and perhaps with a smaller audience. Um, were you able to get to Rome before the Scuderia closed, or or is it something that you're hoping to do? I'd love to go. I mean, sadly, I've, I've looked at the show through the you know an excellent uh, sort of digital tour of it, um, and you know been thinking about this idea, which uh, to to kind of reverse Raphael's life. So you begin with his death and sort of work backwards, which is a sort of interesting approach. Uh, I'm not sure that um, I necessarily think it's a success, but I haven't I haven't seen the show. And there are obviously sort of the wonderful theatrical moment of, of seeing the, the tomb in, in the Pantheon recreated uh, in the exhibition as it was uh, back in the 1520s, which would be wonderful. So I'd love to see it, but uh, um, and I hope people do see it, because it's obviously going to be... It certainly is an an amazing uh, group of of Raphael's work, including many wonderful drawings. One of the things that hits home about that video, which I too have watched, is that it does it does reveal that that Raphael was absolutely at the peak of his powers when he died quite young, at not quite thirty seven. So, can you explain sort of where he was at that point? You know, what what were, what in in theory did the future ahead of him look like at that point? Well, I mean, it's it's very interesting to, when you look at his last painting, the Transfiguration in the in the Vatican Museum, and and you see the way that he sort of welded together um, aspects of of Leonardo's sort of tenebristic style uh, with the kind of grandeur of of Michelangelo's figurative language. Where he would have gone from there, I mean, it, it's a kind of um, you know, it's a kind of one of the great what ifs of of, of art history. Uh, whether, in a way, he was moving towards the kind of excesses that would later we would later define a, a, as mannerism, um, you know, I think it's very difficult to know uh, where he would have gone in in the respect that you know he's he's always ahead of us. Uh, he was always innovative. Uh, you know, I think the only thing that we can be certain of is he wouldn't have remained the same. Um, in terms of his position, you know, he was uh, appointed as architect of of St Peter's. Uh, he's in charge of sort of surveying the ancient city of Rome. He's winning all the plum commissions in Rome. So, as you say, he's at the pinnacle and he must have been under a huge strain in terms of um, productivity. I mean, you know, he, he, you know, he was aware uh, that being the chief, the chief artist uh, in Rome uh, was was a position that everybody else wanted. I mean, of course, there was going to be the sack of Rome. So, um, in in 1527, which then kind of dissolves Rome for a bit. But uh, I dare say Raphael would have found another court to to look after him. But yeah, I mean, to be at the pinnacle um, means that you have to be producing. So um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I dare say exhaustion played its part. Quite apart from you know the the story of La Fornarina exhausting him sexually. But I think a lot of it must be just, you know, he was sort of wrung out because everybody wanted him. He's the hottest artist in Europe and every uh, crowned head from the the King of France, uh, etc., wanted a work by Raphael. And, and uh, you know, he was he wanted, of course, to, to send his art around the known world too. So he was keen to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think exhaustion must have played a part in his demise. 
let's talk about his legacy then because it's, it's, it's quite curious I mean I began with that quote from Clark and him talking about him not quite fitting the 20th century uh, age but um, he you know he there were there have been moments in history where Raphael was seen as the summit of artists um, yeah I mean for for longer than any other artist I think well I mean, yeah yeah can you, can you explain the sort of posthumous sort of legacy well, I, you know, Raphael is is where academic art um, comes out of. He was he was sort of the model for for every French, German, you know, any any, any European painter. Uh, you you spent your time um, looking at Raphael's work, either in in through prints and and printmaking. Of course, was incredibly important uh, because that was another. A side of Raphael is that he saw that unlike Michelangelo who shunned any printmaker uh, Raphael was clever enough to see that printmaking was a way of getting his ideas out to the wider world so he works in close collaboration with um, uh, Marcantonio Raimondi um, and so Raphael's work becomes the model by which every art art academy uh, in Europe is 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 formed that that is what that was the canon i mean uh, there were other artists too uh, but you know you, you only have to look at let's say to say you know artists like poussin say you know he's an artist who had absorbed raphael to an extraordinary extent lebrun uh, in uh, le, uh, later on um so raphael is yeah i mean and the same despite quite a short career there's so much of raphael um that um I think, uh, you know, he kind of provides quite a kind of a good, um, uh, you know, breadth of breadth of art in, in order for you to copy, both, you know, as a portraitist or uh, as a grand history, which, of course, was what European artists, that was a sort of the pinnacle of what you did, uh, the historical painting. And, and, and Raphael, of course, was extraordinarily good at that and, and had provided the kind of uh, the the kind of the manual for how to do it. So do you think there's any chance? I mean, sorry to keep co- quoting Kenneth Clark, but another thing... No, is, I is mean, you can't, I'm a you, great you, fan you, of you, Kenneth Clark, so <laughs> go ahead, quote away. Well, well, he makes the point about sensibility, and then he says also that, that no one's going to write a bestseller about Raphael. <laughs> and I think there, there is an element of that, isn't there? I mean, you know, there isn't that much intrigue around the man. And 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 therefore, you know, sort of Leonardo and Michelangelo in their kind of mysteriousness somehow uh, are, are are attractive, popular figures in a way that Raphael seems somehow slightly remote. Is that fair? Well, I think it's it's partly a degree of the accident of history. I mean, we have a huge archive of letters that Michelangelo left us because being a good kind of bourgeois Florentine you know he kept he kept his letters and they're all carefully stored away in the family archive so we we really kind of have a a very strong sense of of Michelangelo's voice um sometimes rather difficult voice and you know we to the extent we sort of know what was in his bank accounts um uh, Leonardo is shadowy but of course you know he left his notebooks um so we 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 have a lot of information in in, in that regard. Uh, there are two letters by Raphael, so you know understanding quite his personality uh, and and where he was coming from uh, is is much more difficult. It's much more a matter of sort of projection, really. Um, so I think you know that is a basic problem about him. We just don't. Um, his voice, uh, what, his personality, we have to rely on, on Vasari and others. And, you know, Vasari never met uh, uh, Raphael. He uh, m- met people who had met him, but, you know, he's at one remove. Um, so I, I think he kind of furnishes less information for the biographer. Um, I mean, it's it's his work that that is the only way that we can kind of understand him. Um, but that obviously is a bit short of human drama, uh, you know, uh, even the story about La Fornarina is, you know, may or may not be true. And the idea of the sort of priapic artist was one that, let's say, Picasso seized on with, with, uh, with great uh, enjoyment, um, because of course Raphael was sort of gave license for all artists uh, thereafter that it was okay to, you know, to sleep with your models. 
uh, you know, obviously something that Picasso was tremendously <laughs> keen on, uh, <laughs> keen on taking up. Uh, and so, in the three, four, seven series, uh, there is wonderful group of uh, within that of of, of Raphael and La Fornarina kind of um, screwing with with gay abandon, and Julius II as a kind of voyeuristic Picasso-like figure, sort of uh, unable to. Um, kind of enjoy it, but enjoying sex vicariously. Um, and, you know, Ang, for example, did that painting, Raphael and his mistress. Uh, I think kind of Raphael's sex life has always been a source of much um, interest to all artists. Hugo, thank you so much for telling us about this extraordinary artist well not at all as i say Raphael is an artist that i never tire of looking at there's always something new and exciting about his work you can see the video tour of the Raphael show on the scuderia del quirinale's youtube channel and when the british museum opens again which we hope will be in early july a small exhibition Raphael in 2020, Emerging Artists Respond, features six artist responses to a Raphael drawing featuring five studies of nude male torsos, based on the great drawing by Michelangelo, Battle of Cascina. A bit later, we'll hear about male art, and Mark Dion tells us about his passion for the American Museum of Natural History. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. There was contrasting news from two of the world's leading museums this week. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam will reopen to the public on the 1st of June and its Caravaggio Bernini show, originally scheduled to close on the 7th of June, will, like the Raphael show in Rome, be extended, in this case to the 13th of September. It had only been open for four weeks before the lockdown began. But in New York, as Nancy Kenny tells us, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has delayed its reopening from the 1st of July until mid-August, or perhaps a few weeks later. The museum says that its postponed opening is being planned in tandem with New York State's cautious phase plan for reopening the city as coronavirus cases retreat. Now, news of an even longer delay. The next Venice Biennale for art will now take place a year later than originally planned, Gareth Harris reports. This follows the Biennale's decision to postpone the Architecture Biennale, which was due to open this year, until May 2021. The Art Biennale is being organised by the Italian curator Cecilia Alemani and will now take place between the 23rd of April and the 27th of November 2022. And finally, the UK government this week appointed Neil Mendoza as its Commissioner for Cultural Recovery and Renewal, Martin Bailey writes. Mendoza will be responsible for providing the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, or DCMS, with an expert and independent voice to deal with the coronavirus pandemic's impact on the arts. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's continues to expand its online-only auction calendar with new sale offerings. Now open for bidding, La Vion Rose focuses on exuberant landscapes and colourful portraits that transport us to a rosier time. Highlights include works by Duga, Rodin and Lucidani. Form and Fantasy maps the course of the avant-garde through abstraction and the fantastical, including works by Picasso, Miro, Giacometti and Marini. The refresh schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, since the 1960s, artists from around the world looked to the post as an alternative means of producing and distributing art. With letters, postcards and packages, as well as material that tested the limits of what could be posted, like bricks with stamps on them, so-called male artists, most famously Ray Johnson, circumvented traditional elite modes of display and distribution, like museums and commercial galleries, in favour of the more accessible, democratic space of the modern post. Using the commonness and interconnectedness of postal networks, they explored the inequities of the global art market and national regulations regarding culture and communications across varied political circumstances, from McCarthy-era America to communist Poland and Augusto Pinochet's Chile. In many ways, the philosophies behind male art preceded the nascent net art movement of the 1990s. As mentioned in the news bulletin on last week's podcast, as COVID-19 has closed physical art spaces, some artists have re-engaged with the history of male art, sharing physical artworks and creating connections, even in isolation. Especially in the US, this has become once again a radical act since the Nationalised Postal Service has become a target of the Trump administration over recent months as it looks to cut federal costs. 
Miriam Keenley, the Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of Kentucky and curator of Pushing the Envelope, a long-term exhibition now digitised and available to view online at the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, is a male art scholar. Our senior editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to her about the various histories of postal works and the renaissance of the medium that's now underway. The Postal Service has been an instrument of largely leftist political discourse, as well as, at its core, a social utility, uh, since its inception. So what was the genesis of mail art back in the 1960s, and what was radical about the ideas of its practitioners, people like Ray Johnson, who you've spent a long time studying? Yeah, so I think on the one hand, the Postal Service is a liberal institution, um, defined by like equal access to communication and the ability to connect with people and organize across long distances. Um, for example, the argument for the um, implementation of inexpensive postage, like in the mid-19th century, like the beginning of the modern post, was that it would foster mass literacy through equal communication. But I think from its core, there's also this other side to it, um, that I've explored in my research on Johnson, um, where the Postal Service, particularly maybe postal inspection, also has historically been used to kind of monitor and control communication. So, for example, in the U.S., there were the Comstock laws that were used to kind of regulate gender and sexuality from the mid-19th century into the 20th century. So I think the male, there's this potential for both um, democratization and control, and that male artists engaged with both facets um, in interesting ways. So Ray Johnson, who is this key initiator of the male art movement in the 1960s, he was inspired by male's accessibility in making male art. So unlike this exclusive realm of the art world where um Art is sold for large sums of money to largely and wealthy elite clientele and galleries. Um, he was interested how you could share art through the mail um, for just the price of a postage stamp. And um, but on the other hand, I think Johnson also saw that the postal system um, had some exclusionary practices. So, for example, um, he often circulated homoerotic collages at a time in which that was actually illegal um, under the Comstock laws. And he played with modes of address, like um, the ways in which he um, addressed recipients, um, playing kind of with surnames and such. Um, so how surnames maybe codified gender, and he would kind of play with that. So I think like um, the ways in which male artists like Johnson use the post kind of engage its accessibility, but also these elements um, where it's a system kind of where there can be some control too, um, that maybe limits its democratizing aspect. So there, okay, so there was a subversiveness to the kind of democratization that the male offered, which I think is really interesting. But this also has tendrils that go far beyond just the U.S. Postal Service. And we've also seen artists using postal services in Latin America and Eastern Europe as kinds of forces of social change as well. How did those movements maybe mirror the movements in the U.S.? And how did they differ? Um, so I think the international mail art movement shares this interest in circumventing elite modes of display like galleries and museums and using the postal system to send and receive art um, globally. But um, as you're suggesting, you know, the conditions of sending and receiving mail art are really different depending upon uh, the social and cultural context. So for example, um, as mail art was becoming this global phenomenon in the 1970s and 80s, many Latin American countries like Chile and Argentina were ruled by U.S.-backed military dictatorships. And in addition to already having kind of a smaller art infrastructure of galleries and museums, art that was shown in public couldn't really dissent against government policy. And so the mail became kind of an alternative exhibition space, like an alternative kind of public space, 
where artists like um, Eduardo Vigo and Graziella Gutierrez Marx and Guillermo Deisler could make art that actually opposed the violent dictatorship that they were living under. And I think similarly in Eastern Europe, particularly in the Soviet Union, art was really tightly controlled by the state. And male art was um, was kind of an alternative means of making art that was different than official art, um, kind of like unofficial, an unofficial art practice. But even the male was actually heavily monitored. And so artists had to be really savvy to kind of circumvent the censors, um, sort of for example, an artist like um, Paweł Petez, um, who was a prominent Polish uh, male artist, he used materials that were really hard to open. So he would make like his own handmade paper and sew, sew his mailings shut with the hopes that the censors would find it too difficult to bother to open. Um, and so he could have these mailings and um, that would connect him to artistic circles outside of Poland um, during this period where it was really hard to kind of make those connections. Um, and, uh, and he came up with sort of savvy ways of doing that. Um, so I think depending upon the particular political context, um, artists came up with really different tactics to make male art, um, and connect, you know, with artists. So there were lots of artists in Eastern Europe who, um, shared male art with artists in Latin America and um, artists in Latin America, you know, sharing art with artists in the U.S. I would say um, as a kind of general statement that maybe the male art in Latin America and Eastern Europe was more clearly like politicized and oppositional um, than a lot of the male art in the U.S. I've found that male art in the U.S. oftentimes... Um, was sort of rebuking the gallery system. Um, and sometimes it was, uh, you know, making larger political statements, like I suggested with Johnson about the Comstock laws. But I think um, because of the, the kind of oppressive conditions that male art was being made in Latin America and Eastern Europe, um, it was really very much um, organized around political dissent. I think what's really interesting in what you're saying about these Latin American and Eastern European contexts is this, this sense of finding ways to connect um, in otherwise uh, adverse circumstances. And of course, I'm not likening the pandemic to, uh, you know, dictatorship, but we are finding ourselves in a moment of adversity of, you know, a global sort right now. And, and really looking for ways to connect, which I think to my mind, explains a lot of why we're seeing a kind of resurgence in interest in and practice of male art over the past couple of months. And I just wanted to know what your opinion of that is. Is that, do you think it's fueled by the pandemic or has this been a resurgence that you think has been going on for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think because it's, I think it's always been there, but um, like art, male artists have continued making uh, work for many decades, but I think because it's a kind of work that can be shared, um, at a distance, like at a social distance, it's built into it. Um, it's having a kind of renaissance. Um, so I, I think, you know, male art is a way to experience art in person when galleries and museums are closed. And it's also a way to experience culture that's not mediated by screens. So I think a lot of people are experiencing um, during the pandemic screen fatigue while doing all of their working and socializing remotely. And that male art kind of offers this alternative way of connecting with others. So many and many male artists um, really underscore like the tactility um, and materiality of the male and um, actually in this exhibition at the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art that uh, I curated that is now a digitized exhibition, um, one section was dedicated to the materiality of the male. So this artist, Leonora Tawney, who I love, she would send these envelopes dedicated um, to her partner, Mariette Charlton, that had feathers on the envelopes and inside on the mailers. 
And it's amazing that they actually were processed through the mail and still held these beautiful patterns of feathers on the outsides of the envelopes. But I think um, the these really ta- this tactile form of communication is something we have a real desire for right now. Um, there's something really personal and intimate about getting something in the mail that um, maybe breaks up your day of, um, you know, working <laughs> on the computer or what have you. So I think that that's also part of it is really this like material aspect to it. In addition to the fact that it can be shared over social distance. Absolutely. And I'm shocked that something with feathers on it would, would arrive yeah. intact still. Like I feel like the, those days are far gone. Yeah. <laughs> my letters arrive all crumpled up. Yeah. <laughs> shoved in my mailbox. I know. I know. I think it's, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, the post office, how it has, it processes so much mail every day. It's kind of like a miracle <laughs> that so many things get to us intact. And I also think about, you know, in the mail art movement, um, it, it's, um, you know, testing what could be mailed was kind of something that a lot of mail artists enjoyed, you know, putting stamps on a brick or, um, and seeing if it got through all in one piece, right? Or I think Printed Matter has a mail art project right now and they said somebody mailed a whole telephone. So, um, like an old fashioned telephone. And so I think like actually posting things that, um, that you're seeing like, how they get through the mail. And it is kind of a miracle that they arrive and they arrive in one piece, especially if there's something delicate like that um, with the, with the feathers. But that's a really interesting point about the kind of pressure you can put on the the USPS at this point, because it now has a different kind of political pressure on it. Um, And, you know, while at the same time that this, exhibition at the Archives of American Art that you've worked on has been digitized. Um, the current presidential administration is threatening to defund the Postal Service and, and take it private, um, and saying that, you know, you know, just kind of that it's no longer, it, it's a financial drain and people are using so many more technologically advanced forms of communication anyway. So I think a larger question for more philosophically at this point is what's at stake um, if we were to privatize something like the USPS and, and what can we learn about the value of the Postal Service from the histories presented in the exhibition that you worked on? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm really concerned about these attempts to defund and privatize the post office too. I mean, um, it's an institution that a ensures affordable postage and delivery for all people, even those living in really remote um, parts of the country. Um, And I really think it's an engine for, you know, creativity and democracy. And I think that's one of the things that the exhibition shows. I mean, I, I worry that with this new postmaster general who actually comes from the corporate sector and is a major Trump campaign donor, um, I worry that the how the institution is going to be handled and that if we defend the post, like how will everyone, you know, affordably get CDC guidelines or unemployment checks or, um, or even vote by mail, um, which looks like it might be a real possibility. So I think the show like really underscores the importance of universal delivery, like that everyone has access to um, communication and to culture and even, and to the right to dissent. So, um, I think it's kind of also a cautionary tale about what happens when the postal system falls into the hands of those who wish to use it to undermine democracy. So I think you both see in it how people use the mail in all of these incredible creative ways to connect with others and mobilize and make these really, you know, touching intimate connections that maybe aren't possible through a phone call or um, on a screen. It really underscores both. It's like a cautionary tale for like how the post office can be used in a way that that undermines democracy, but also how it is an instrument of democracy. And I think like I have faith having studied postal history. I mean, it's sort of a beleaguered institution and um, and it survived, you know, for many decades of these attempted 
um, attempts at defunding it. And I think, you know, from its many unionized workers um, who deliver the mail every day to those of us who use it every day, like, I don't think it's going to go down without a fight. That's so interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Miriam. Yes, thank you, Maggie. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And finally this week, for the latest in our series Lonely Works, in which we look at artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus, the artist Mark Dion has chosen the American Museum of Natural History as a single entity. Now, Mark, this is sort of Lonely Works, but in a way, your work has always thought in terms of grand installations and in a sense that the American Museum of Natural History is like one enormous installation, isn't it? It's, you know, it's an extraordinary place. And I think visiting the museum, which has so many different halls that are made at so many different times, it really is time traveling. So you move from people's idea of nature in the 1930s to their idea of nature in the 1950s to how people imagined it in the 1980s. You know, it's, it's just remarkable how um, you really see the, the values and uh, the material sensibility and, uh, and you know, construction methods, all of that uh, as you move through the space. So tell me, when did you first visit that, that museum? Because it's a sort of museum, I'm imagining you, you visiting it as a child. No, not at all. You know, I, I grew up in a very blue collar family, so um, we didn't travel at all. And, uh, and my family were not the kind of people who would frequent the museums. So the first museum I went to is... is the New Bedford Whaling Museum in my hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, but in a way, that kind of set the template for me because it's a museum of natural history, industrial history, social history, um, vernacular arts and crafts. It has a great Hudson River School painting collection. So the idea of all of these different things under one roof really started there. And and for me, that's that's it, it sort of, gave me an idea of this is what museums could be and should be. And I still think they could be and should be. So, so I visited first the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Um, soon after moving, I moved to New York in maybe 82 or 83. And somewhere around maybe 84 or so, I stumbled into the museum and um, it was a life-changing experience. Now, at that time, you were on the Whitney Independent Study Programme in New York. And obviously with that comes a whole series of associations. There's a whole, you know, generation of artists who emerged from that program, but also there's a kind of uh, um, a sort of a toughness about the, the, the art and maybe a sense of a certain kind of conceptual attitude. And I wonder how much of that sort of rubbed off on you, but also how much did you sort of counteract a lot of the kind of forces that were around you at that time? Well, you know, in the certainly in the early 80s, there was a great sort of mania for critical theory, right? And artists, young artists who were studying were asked to become, you know, uh, young philosophers, you know, were reading things uh, that maybe they hadn't the foundations for. So reading Derrida and Foucault and Lacan uh, and... Uh, and sort of just jumping in. You know, most, most people who study philosophy read those things, but they really start at the beginning of Western philosophy traditions and kind of work their way up. We just kind of jumped in. And so, I, you know, I was very steeped in that critical tr tradition through the Whitney program and through the School of Visual Arts where I studied before. Uh, and, and I liked it. I, you know, for me, it was, it was really like a, assembling a, a toolbox of really interesting ideas and... I was, you know, I kind of had this toolbox, but I just didn't know what to apply these tools to. A lot of the art that people were making, you know, were, were around sort of gender issues and identity issues and these things that weren't really the core of my interest in a sense. So it wasn't until I went into the Natural History Museum that I realized like, oh, the culture of nature, the history of natural history, this is this is what I've been waiting for. This is sort of the territory I want to sink my critical teeth into. Uh, and I think that, you know, that critical approach functions best when it's something that you care a lot about and think a lot about. 
That's really interesting because one of the things I'm sort of conscious of is that I would imagine you would have been going around the museum and as well as a kind of sense of wonder at this extraordinary space, finding lots of problems in the presentation in a way being enticed by those problems. Is that is that fair? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the museum has a, a fraught history and and. Uh, I'm certainly not the first person to point that out. There's a lot of a lot of people have written about that history, and and the the past of the museum is filled with you know a lot of villains, but also a lot of heroes. Uh, so I mean I think it's really it would be a mistake to just think you could throw the whole thing out because it's been so steeped in ideology uh, and problematic ideas. There have also been some some champions of really important ideas like like Franz Boas and Margaret Mead and you know, and so many people who are um, uh, behind the scenes doing scientific work um, that, uh, you know, exploring the, the history, our, the history of our planet and, and evolution. So um, I think, you know, it's it's a schizophrenic place in, in more ways than one. You know, it has, uh, it's loaded, its history is loaded with some very reprehensible figures, but also some incredibly progressive thinkers. Uh, and, uh, you know, in and, and the same way that, what we see when we visit often is is the front of the house, you know, which is only a small portion. There's also the back of the house, which is filled with researchers. So you have this actual practicing science and you have these sort of didactic exhibitions, some of which are out of date, but are incredibly instructive because of that. Yeah, tell me about those. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued to know which of the famous dioramas and things like that that you, you, you're particularly enticed by, or, or or is it actually, in fact, some of the less famous elements of the museum that you that you think of most? You know, I've gone to that museum so many times. You know, I, I think if, if I took, and I, I love museums, I'm really engaged. I really think that they're transformative, positive places. And and I'm an artist. I love to go to art museums. I love to go to the Metropolitan, the Guggenheim, uh, the New Museum, MoMA, the Whitney. But I probably go to the Natural History Museum in every year more than I go to all the other museums put together. So my experience of it is really, um, I have a, a good degree of expertise around it, but I also like to experience it as a flaneur, you know, to just kind of walk through and as many times as I've been there, I've all, I'm always discovering something new. So I, I sort of meander through the museum with my eyes open, and uh, and I'm constantly finding uh, hidden corners I hadn't seen before, exhibits I hadn't seen before, things that I love that go off exhibit. Um, but I am really interested in what I consider the most endangered exhibits. You know, the ones that are now so old that they are perhaps the science is no longer accurate. Uh, perhaps the, the perspective of the, of the installation is not um, up to date and, and may even be offensive. And um, so I'm always looking at those to really try to understand what it's like to put your head, put your idea of uh, trying to imagine what someone in 1953 is imagining when they're putting this exhibition together and what their idea of nature is uh, when there are just so many things that we understand and think about nature today that weren't available to them. There's also so many things that that are the priorities for them that we just don't really consider the priorities anymore. And of course, the thing about museums of natural history is there is and we, we, in, you know, in a in a twenty first century through twenty first century spectacles, we can look back at this as you you just were there and say, you know, actually there was a misguided or an illusion of neutrality, whereas actually there were all sorts of biases and all sorts of um, subjectivities involved. And of course, that's absolutely at the core of your own work, isn't it? It is, but uh, you know, I'm definitely not interested in just wagging my finger at people from the past, right? I mean, it, that, that's such an easy thing to do, and and there's nothing at stake to do that. So, you know, I also want to, you know, be somehow implicated in a way, showing that my own construction and my own views of nature somehow are filtered through all this, which, um, which also, you know makes me a little bit angry in some cases, you know, this, the sort of, um, assumptions that are instilled in my own identity as a person. 
uh, that that are very problematic uh, that it takes a lifetime to sort of decode and react against and and in some way that's a big part of what the work is about um, but at the same time I, I think it's it's important to try to put those periods in the perspective of the moment and try to understand them sincerely and not just uh, dismiss them as misguided treat, really try to understand um, where they fit into this um, history of ideas that have led us to this um, weird suicidal relationship to the natural world that we have. And of course, that's another thing that when you go to a natural history museum today, very often climate change is at the forefront of their thinking. And of course, again, you know, that's another wonderful thing about having uh, natural history museums, which have got long histories, is that you see that relationship with climate shift over time, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's so dramatic to imagine that, you know, in a museum which has so many ex uh, exhibitions that are that are quite old, you know, going back to the 1930s, uh, still uh, existing, you know, you really can track the notion of, of nature as something that we have to be protected from to the notion of nature as something we have to protect. I mean, you can really see that as you go from one room to the other. You mean that there's a sort of threatening quality to some of those, um, like, for instance, where you had the squid and the whale or, you know, those kind of uh, dramatic installations? Yeah, I mean, of course, they often do, um, you know, they, they, they are biased to drama in some ways. The diorama is a very dramatic form. And so there are a lot of things, uh, you know, the diorama's goal is to try to tell as much of the story in a single representation. So... Uh, which aspects of the story they pick are often the most dramatic ones. And often, um, you know, animals are put together into family groups that normally wouldn't be in family groups and things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, and and you can see the the real um, emphasis in some cases on on ferocity, right, on, on the wildness of wild animals. So tell me about the sort of display mechanisms that you have used in your own work, which have been based exactly on these kind of displays. And and, and I'm intrigued also about to what extent um, it, you were attracted in, in terms of the Natural History Museums by the fact that there isn't, there very often aren't precious objects as such. They're not necessarily objects that are worth enormous amounts of money. And, and therefore... You know, one of the things that you have done is to bring into the gallery space a lack of preciousness about the very objects that we're looking at and fascinated by. And I'm intrigued by that, how much the Natural History Museum model has kind of influenced that sort of skewed and interesting relationship your work has with value. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting because when you say that, um, you know, there there is a big difference between, say, mostly European museums of natural history in which they really talk about nature, wild places, wild animals, wild things, wild plants. Um, and um, in the American tradition of natural history, very often we include cultural history and ethnography as under the umbrella of natural history. So when we go to the natural history in New York, we see things like um, the Hall of Asian Peoples, the Hall of African Peoples, um, the, the Hall of... Um, of uh, various um, Native American groups. Uh, and so in some sense, we do have a lot of the things that are kind of valuable in that way. In the Hall of uh, Oceanic People, you'll see very much the same kinds of objects you would see on the other side of Central Park in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that there's always been a very strange and interesting tension and, and something I think is really important to unravel looking at um, how American museums of natural history frame natural history, including cultural anthropology, which is very different from European museums. So, um, and, I, and I think that's a, an aspect of that that is a progressive and there's an aspect of that that, uh, that is really pernicious. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what I, one of the things that I learned a lot from natural history displays, um, you know, of course, are, are techniques and technologies like the diorama, right? So, I've I've often made dioramas sort of like the dioramas I wish I saw in the Natural History Museum, which really depict the everyday animals that we come across. So, you know, in London, that would be 
um, you know, uh, feral foxes and pigeons and rats and mice and starlings and house sparrows, these kind of things that live um, very closely to us. So, so I've made a handful of dioramas that, that really show these animals that have been, been skillful at adapting to the world we're making for them. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Until it reopens, you can take a virtual tour of the American Museum of Natural History at amnh.org. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And do give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our daily newsletters to which you can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Producers of the Week in Art are Julian Mihauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. David also does the editing. Thanks to Hugo, to Miriam and to Mark. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.